The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So the, um, the last, I don't know, month or more of when I've been here, I was away the last two weeks. And it's nice to be back and see all of you. Um, I've been talking about the Four Noble Truths and just kind of decided to go through the Four Noble Truths in pretty great detail, actually. Um, I had, in one retreat I taught in in April or May, um, come back from that retreat with a great appreciation of the power of really exploring the fundamental teachings of the Buddha in, in more detail. And the, the, the Buddha actually said at one point, everything that I teach is subsumed in this teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And so I think I spent five or six weeks talking about the First Noble Truth. <laughs> um, and now I'm ready to move on to the Second Noble Truth. <laughs> but I'll just give a little bit of, a, of an overview of the Four Noble Truths um, and then talk a little bit about the the second noble truth, and again, I'll just keep going on that until I'm done with that one. Um, so the four noble truths being these, this foundational teaching of the Buddha, it's really a wisdom teaching. It's a teaching um, in describing what is helpful to understand, kind of a framework through which we can explore our experience. And this wisdom, this wisdom teaching, will begin to free our minds from the habitual ways that we work ourselves into struggling, dissatisfaction, difficulty, suffering. So these Four Noble Truths are the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. So they're all kind of framed around this term suffering. And uh, this essentially was the, the, the term suffering, and I spent quite a bit of time talking about this um, in the last few weeks. Um, the term suffering translates this term dukkha. And it's not what we typically think of as, uh, I mean, it, it includes what we think of as suffering, but it's broader than what we usually think of as suffering. And so, you know, this, this is actually, this was the problem that the Buddha was trying to solve. What is this dissatisfaction that we experience? Why does it always seem like we're not satisfied with our lives? What, we're always continually grasping for something more, something better, get rid of things we don't like, get things we do like. And what, we're, we're on this kind of like wheel of endlessly trying to satisfy our desires. And what's this about? Why, why does this happen to us? So this was, the, this was the question that the Buddha asked himself. And his, um, his recognition or his discovery was that this Suffering, this dissatisfaction, uh, 
is, is a result of something that happens in our own minds. It's not inherent in, in the world. I mean, there's an inherent kind of flow of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience that happens to us. Painful experience, pleasant experience. You know, we, we, we fall down and bruise our knee and there's unpleasant sensation in our knee or, you know, we, we um, cut our hand with a knife and that's unpleasant. So there's, there's and there's pleasant experience. You know, we, we meet with friends and there's happiness. So there's this flow of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral experience. The Buddha says that what happens to that is that we react to it. We, um, we aren't simply uh, willing to accept that this is the flow of things as they are. We try to hold on to things that we like. And we try to push things that we don't like away. Essentially, this, this flow of things as they are we try to kind of stop it up and say, oh, let's hold on to this. Let's, let's just leave it right here. Let's keep it like this. Or let's keep this part and get rid of that part. And that is what the Buddha is calling the suffering. That, that dissatisfaction with things as they are. That's non-acceptance of things as they are. And so it's a, it's the, it's a mental response, a mental reactivity, a mental non-acceptance that is this a root of our suffering. And this is essentially the second noble truth. This, the cause of our suffering is wanting things to be other than they are. And then the third noble truth essentially says that it's possible to be free of that, of that struggle. And partly because, I mean, in fact, entirely because it is something that is constructed in our minds. If it were inherent in the world, it would not be possible to be free of it. But it is something that is uh, a mental skew in the way we relate to experience. Because it's a mental experience, it's possible to change that. So there is this possibility of freedom from this Mental pain and grief is another way that it's put. That, that when the Buddha talks about this freedom from suffering, this ending of suffering, he says that one who has exper- is experiencing that experiences no mental pain or grief. And kind of let that sink in, you know. It's, it's a pretty amazing statement that that's a possibility to experience no mental pain or grief envision what that would be like. No mental pain or grief around anything that happens. There wouldn't be any problems. So that's the third noble truth, this possibility. And the fourth noble truth, that there is a, a path, a, um, a way, a a direction that we can move to cultivate the qualities of heart and mind that support our beginning to understand these truths. So these truths, as stated by the Buddha, aren't simply, you know, these are truths, believe them. They are uh, truths meant to be acted on. They're truths meant to be engaged with. 
So the first noble truth, the truth of suffering, he says, suffering should be understood. And this is what I've been talking about. This understanding of suffering is understanding what is this, ment- this mental reactivity. And when we look at when we suffer, so often we are attributing the problem to being out there in the world. If only that thing were different, or that set of things were different, then I would be happy. And so the Buddha says, look again. The happiness comes not from having things out there being just the way we want them to be, but from letting go of needing things to be any particular way. So this is this uh, exploration of understanding suffering. When you are experiencing suffering, looking at what that is. What, what is the actual suffering there? And the cause of suffering, he says the cause of suffering is meant to be let go of. And the cause of suffering, and this I'll talk about more in just a few moments. Then the uh, third noble truth, the uh, truth of the ending of suffering, is meant to be realized. So it's not something that's an abstract thing. We actually realize it in our experience. This possibility becomes reality, becomes truth, becomes our actual experience that this is possible, that we can be in this world non-reactively, no mental pain or grief around things as they are. And this fourth noble truth is meant to be cultivated or developed. So that we have to actually take action on these qualities of heart and mind. We can't simply sit there and hope that they'll come. We, we need to take some steps. We need to cultivate our minds, cultivate our hearts to support the development of these qualities of the Eightfold Path. So the second noble truth, see how far I get with this today. I've got at least three, if not four, talks I see for this topic. Um, So the second noble truth, the truth of the cause of suffering. you know, before I get to what the Buddha says the cause of suffering is, I want to just highlight here that the Buddha says suffering has a cause. You know, this is actually uh, an insight. It's a, it's a recognition. Last time I talked about, I think it was the last time I talked about the three insights associated with, the, uh, with each truth. And that for the first noble truth, the, these insights, there's three, three key insights that we have around each truth that are experiential. They're not just belief. They are experiential. And so around the first noble truth, these three key insights are there is suffering. This is suffering. And um, the second insight is that suffering should be understood. The third is suffering has been understood. And so these, uh, these insights... Um, are related to this action that is connected with the the truth. 
So for the second noble truth, it's the same kind of framework for these insights associated with the uh, action of letting go. So the cause of suffering, this, this is a cause of suffering. There is a cause of suffering. The cause of suffering should be let go of. The cause of suffering has been let go of. And so just this simple recognition that suffering has a cause is actually a profound uh, recognition. That this cause, and that this cause is something happening in our minds. So to, to begin to recognize this cause of suffering. So the, the suffering in our lives, the, the ways that we feel stress, feel dissatisfaction, unease, have a cause. It's not random. It's not just a chance that we experience this dukkha. There's a cause for it. And that's actually, that's important to recognize that, that it's not random. And the Buddha says that the cause is the, the Pali term is tanha. And the translation is often craving. That's probably the most common translation for that term, craving. The literal term, the literal translation of the term tanha means thirst. And so this gives you a little bit of a sense of the uh, hmm, kind of urgency to the feeling of craving this tanha, the urgency to this feeling of tanha. Because when you're thirsty, if, you know, if you're out in a desert um, and you don't have water with you and you've been you know, walking for a couple of hours, there's a kind of an urgency to get to some water. There's a kind of a biological uh, neediness around it. And this is the, the this kind of neediness is... Um, part of this craving. And craving's actually, you know, it's, it's a pretty good term because craving, the term even in English, has that sense of, you know, I need, I need, I need. So other translations are desire or wanting. Now the, um, the wanting that... I'm going to talk a little bit about um, how or why this wanting causes suffering. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, you know, as I said a few minutes ago, it's really about the non-acceptance of things as they are right here and right now. It all comes down to this moment. It seems kind of hard to believe that all our suffering comes down to just this moment but it is all related to our response, our reaction to this present moment. And essentially what, what happens is that we, um, we aren't at ease with this flow of experience through the pl- present moment. We, we either want things to be different or we want things to kind of stay put. So the... Um, you know, the, the the, 
there's, there's, different, there's different ways that we want things. You know, we want, first of all, the kind of the most obvious kind of wanting is the wanting of physical pleasantness. And we want to create a situation where there's pleasant things around us. And, you know, this creates suffering because in the first place, if we want those things and we don't get them, we suffer because we don't get them. So that's one way that that wanting kind of creates the suffering. Because the, you know, there's this, this uh, discrepancy between what our mind is saying we need and what, we, what is actually happening. And that's a mental, it's a mental process, the wanting itself. And then, so there's this, the, you know, the kind of the, the wanting things in the world. Well, suppose we get things that we want. Why is that a problem? You know, what, what, is, the, what is the problem with getting things that we want? It's not inherently a problem. Um, but what seems to happen with that when we get things that we want is that we're not just satisfied that we have them for a moment. We want to hold on to them. We want to keep them. We think in a way that this having things that we want is the way it's supposed to be and that if somehow or for some reason those things end or disappear or get broken or lost or stolen, that this is a problem. And so even having the things that we want, there's a kind of an inherent um, struggle there because we know, I think, deep in our being that things are impermanent, that there's, that there's not a, a kind of a reliability to be found in, in things in the world. And so there's a fear. These things are going to go away. Or there's a kind of a disappointment when they do go away. So the the wanting, the wanting itself, um, and I think it was really the brilliance of the Buddha to point to this wanting, you know, the wanting itself being a, a source of the suffering. Because when the wanting, if the wanting weren't there, there wouldn't be any suffering. And this is quite, this is quite amazing, actually, to, to watch this. And particularly around, it seems relatively, um, you know, this area of physical wanting, wanting physical pleasant things, wanting to be surrounded by pleasant smells, sights, sounds, etc. That that is a great area to explore this wanting. Um, you know, simple thing like, you know, wanting a piece of chocolate. You know, it's like a little little bit of pleasure in your day. You know, this thought appears in your mind. Of, you see a commercial about chocolate and the desire for chocolate appears. You know, have you ever noticed this happening? <laughs> and so you get up and you go get your chocolate, you know. So what I'd like to, to suggest is, you know, this feeling, this feeling of wanting itself actually feels like there's something off. 
You know, there's, there's a feeling of neediness, a feeling of hole, there's a hole in us, there's a lack, something that needs to be satisfied. And so what I'd like to suggest that the, the Buddha says is really helpful to do is to watch this wanting. So for something simple like that, a chocolate craving, you know, you can watch it. You can actually, you know, get to know the feeling of wanting and not, may, maybe not feel terribly threatened by the fact that you're going to not act on that wanting. So, you know, just try it. See what would happen if you don't act on something that you want, something simple like that. And notice what happens. You, you may um, feel the kind of pull. It almost feels like that chocolate sitting in the kitchen's got this magnet. It's like, mm, no, I need to go get that chocolate. There's a strong, there's a strong pull towards things that we want. You know, it, it almost feels like we're being pulled. For me, it feels like I'm being pulled from here somehow. You know, just really, that, that, there's just a pull. A phys- it can feel like a physical thing. And so, um, if you can watch that, just watch that pull. I mean, in, in the first place, that pull itself feels like something's wrong. There's, there's some suffering in that pull itself. Only we don't usually recognize the suffering of that wanting because we're so focused on the thing we're about ready to get. And we're so focused on the idea that that wanting is about to be satisfied that we miss the feeling of yuckiness around the wanting itself. So this, this is the first thing we explore when we start looking at wanting. We, uh, we explore, what does it feel like? We see it doesn't feel very good, which is part of the reason why we have to go try to satisfy it, because this is what we've learned, actually. We've learned through our lives that um, when we get what we want, it feels good. We get, we get what we want, then there's some kind of a sense of relief, of, of satisfaction, of, whew, okay, got that one. So we've learned that over and over again. You know, that's, that's the way our lives have been led. We get what we want, we feel good. We don't get what we don't want, we're miserable. We don't get what we want, we feel miserable. So playing with this, you know, play with this feeling of wanting you know, for something simple like chocolate, you'll notice at some point, either you'll notice it going away, or more likely the first few times you explore something like this, you'll notice sometime later that you've kind of forgotten about this desire because you haven't acted on it. You know, your mind has distracted itself with something else and, you know, it's like, oh, you know, sometime later, an hour later, you remember, well, what happened to that craving for chocolate? So you see in that disappearance of the craving, of that wanting for the chocolate, there's no more problem around chocolate anyway. There's no more problem. And you might even in this exploration, and I found this, you know, the more I've explored this, the, um, uh, the more I can actually see the cycle of the wanting and can actually see sometimes the wanting actually end. If you see that wanting end, you know, actually see it, it will end in a moment. It will actually stop at some point. If you can see that, you'll see it feels like being released from some kind of a vice grip. 
And in that moment, if you actually see the wanting end, you really get an appreciation for this truth of this teaching, that letting go of the wanting leads to this ending of the suffering. Now in this case around the chocolate, it's just an ending of a small suffering around this feeling of dissatisfaction around not having the chocolate. But you can begin to kind of extrapolate from that and see how much more happiness there would be if we just were able to let go of the things that we want, to let go of that wanting. So this was, I think, really a brilliant thing that the Buddha pointed out, you know, it's the want, the wanting is the cause, and when the wanting goes away, the suffering goes away. This is an amazing, amazing thing to recognize in your experience. So wanting physical things is one of the kind of simple ways that we want things, but it's not really... I mean, we think in some ways that's, that's what we want, but really I think when we look at what we want, there's a lot of more subtle things going on. There are, there's, you know, in particular wanting a certain identities. You know, we want to be seen in a certain way. We want people to view us in a certain way. We want to be seen as a good person or as a as a happy person or as a smart person or something like that. So we want to have certain, we want those identities. We crave that uh, reinforcement of an identity. Or we don't want to be seen in a certain way. You know, we don't want to be seen as someone who's a failure. We don't want to be seen as somebody who's... um, who's aging, or we don't want to be seen as someone who um, has particular views. So this exploration can be more challenging because it begins to be, what is it that we actually want? When we look at where we're struggling, where there is suffering, the suffering, this, uh, you know, when, when we notice a kind of a dukkha, when we notice this dissatisfaction, as subtle as unease, as subtle as a feeling that something is off or just not right, all the way through to this is just intolerable, when we feel things like that, we have the opportunity to look at what is it that I'm holding on to? What, what is it? It's actually largely, quite amazingly, what we're holding on to is an idea. It's a concept. When we react to things, largely there is some idea in our mind. This idea of who I'd like to be, this idea of who that person is, what people should and shouldn't do. Really, really interesting to look at when there is the suffering. What is the idea? What's the concept? What's the belief? 
What's the view that is kind of being um, challenged? You know, when, when, if, we get, if we get angry with somebody about something, you know, what, what is the belief there? They shouldn't be doing that. Now, I'm not saying, you know, that we shouldn't... You know, there, there's certain... There's, there's things that happen in the world that are not just... And I'm not saying, I think often the, the teachings of the Buddha are taken to be some kind of a, oh, accept things as they are, you know, don't do anything. And that's not my understanding of what is being taught. What's being taught is that there is often this reactivity around things as they are. A reactivity based on greed, based on aversion, based on delusion. This craving, this wanting things to be other than they are. So there's this reactivity. And often what happens is that we act out of that reactivity. So we, we, um, you know, we, we see that somebody is is angry and we think, you know, they, they shouldn't be angry at us and, and we get angry back and then we lash out at them out of that anger. So there's a kind of an anger-feeding anger cycle that happens. And the Buddha says, that's not so helpful. You know, it's not so helpful to react out of this greed, out of aversion, out of delusion. But, you know, we've been doing it so long for all of our life that's the whole way we've pretty much lived our lives that, that, you know, we think there's no other way to act. That if we didn't act out of greed, aversion, or, or delusion, that we would never act at all. But there's a kind of a more wholesome side to action. You know, these, these, these actions out of greed, aversion, delusion are, you know, they're, they're not so helpful. But the absence of greed, the absence of aversion, the absence of delusion is not the absence of everything. In fact, the absence of greed, the absence of delusion, the absence of aversion manifests or begins to be experienced as kindness, compassion, generosity, wisdom. And so we can begin to act out of skillful motivation and so instead of meeting that anger with anger it's possible in seeing somebody who's angry to have the response of compassion and to take action out of that compassion so we're not simply becoming lumps on a log and non-responsive we're becoming skillfully responsive that's the direction this path unfolds, is to become more skillfully responsive. Let's see. Hmm. I think I'll say just a couple more things um, before opening it up to questions. 
One is that um, there's often this question around desire, you know, how would we do anything if we didn't have desire? How would anything ever happen if we didn't have desire? And there is a, um, a, um, a, fra- a phrase or a, a, a word in Pali that is often translated as a desire, as I've said, Tanha is often translated as craving, which includes this kind of neediness or this stickiness. There's another term uh, for desire, chanda, which is a neutral kind of desire. It can be associated either with these unwholesome tendencies of greed, aversion, delusion, the wanting things to be a certain way, or it can be associated with these more wholesome tendencies of generosity, of kindness, of compassion, of balance of mind, of wisdom. So this, um, this desire, this chanda, can lead us, when it's associated with these more skillful qualities, can lead us more in the direction of freedom. And so this is the way in which we engage in the Eightfold Path through this chanda, through this, this wish for freedom. So this, this, to me, calls in mind a kind of um, a distinction, perhaps, in the term um, if you think of the term aspiration, that gives you a sense, I think for us that word gives us a sense of of a movement towards something without necessarily having that that neediness or that stickiness to it. So that's a good a good word I think for us to reflect on with respect to this more wholesome kind of desire. That that it is helpful for us to want to cultivate Mindfulness. It's helpful for us to want to cultivate generosity and kindness and compassion. I've talked to so many people um, in discussions about practice, and, and so many people say, Well, I really, I really see, I want to be mindful, but I know that's just craving. <laughs> I know that's just wanting. And, you know, it's a helpful wanting. <laughs> that's, that's a helpful wanting. And one of the ways I navigate this for myself, because at some point, even the helpful wantings do get in our way. You know, they, they, they get in the way from the complete letting go of all craving. Um, that, you know, when a certain kind of wanting is moving in the direction of suffering, we know that that's not helpful. And so if the wanting to be mindful, the wanting to understand is actually moving you, it doesn't feel like suffering, it actually feels like it's supporting you to move in a, in a helpful direction, by all means, follow that wanting. At some point you may notice as I have from time to time in longer, deeper retreat, noticed that that wanting to know, that wanting to understand, was actually the very thing that was in my way. And there was suffering around it. 
So it's the suffering, that suffering, that dissatisfaction, that unease that we can use as a guide, as a, as a kind of a way to navigate what is helpful and what is not helpful. The Buddha suggests we use this a lot. If there's suffering, if there's affliction, check into it. There's probably something off there. There's some wanting, there's some craving, there's some greed, there's some aversion, there's some delusion. If there is no affliction that you can notice, carry on and notice the results. Keep checking in to the results of your actions. Continual reflection and exploration. The other, the other piece I want to uh, say here is that this term tanha, the, the craving, is um, it re- it's related to both greed and aversion. Now, typically, I think that term craving we think of as a wanting, you know, a wanting something. And when I, f- I know when I first heard this, this teaching, it's like, well, how does that have anything to do with aversion? You know, the not wanting things. In my exploration of this, um, I have seen that in in some way, you know, that, that, that the pure aversion, I mean, there is a kind of aversion where it's like, I don't want that thing, I'm going to go get that thing instead. And you can see how craving operates in that. You know, when you don't like something, we find something else to want. So that's a kind of an obvious way that craving operates with respect to aversion. But I've seen too in my own experience that there's a kind of a really pure aversion of just like, no, I just don't want this, you know. It's like anything else. <laughs> and the, the way it feels to me sometimes, it's like, it's like I get stuck to that thing with super glue, trying to get rid of it. And so there's this kind of attachment, there's a craving around it, there's a stickiness to it. And it's kind of like I'm, I'm just completely attached to it. Just, oh, I've got to get rid of this thing. So that this craving, essentially this wanting, wanting things to be other than they are. And you're wanting things to stay or wanting things to get rid, to get rid of things. It's all the greed and aversion. Uh, it, it underlies, this craving underlies both greed and aversion. And the other uh, part of that triad, delusion, um, delusion is really understood to be kind of the whole reason why craving comes into being in the first place. That there's a fundamental misunderstanding about you know, that things, things are as they are, and this non-acceptance of that, the non-acceptance of things as they are, is a form of delusion. That things can't be any other way anyway. They've already appeared like this. Here it is, the experience. And the idea that somehow things can be other than they are is a delusion. Now again, this moves into that kind of, you know, sense of of action, you know, that Okay, we can maybe accept things as they are here and now, but do I have to just sit here with this or can I take some action to change it? It's fine to take action to change it, but keep track of your motivation. 
Is your motivation compassion? Is your motivation aversion? So I think that's enough for me. What, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, there's a microphone right there. Would you hand in the mic? So as far as anger goes, could it be appropriate at times to not search for the cause of the anger, but just to fully experience the anger in the moment? Absolutely. In fact, for me, you know, the, um, the, a whole lot of this exploration comes down to just the present moment. You know, the, the, this was a piece I hadn't, I decided to not go into, but why not now? <laughs> This wanting, this craving, the suffering are all created in the present moment. I mean, there is a sense of there are conditions that come into play from the past, perhaps, to kind of set this experience into motion, this anger into motion. But in my own experience, what I've seen is that it's really most helpful to not, to not go back and look for the past causes, but really to just be here in this moment, feeling that experience, not directing the attention outward to the thing at which we are angry, but actually turning back. What is this feeling? What does it feel like to be angry here and now? What is, the, what is this, the bodily experience? What are the thoughts? Just getting, really getting to know. Pleasant, unpleasant. What is this experience? In my experience, that exploration of this moment begins to reveal to us the holding, the craving and the clinging that are happening in the present moment to bring this into being in the present moment. Because our suffering happens here and now. There are conditions that come into play from the past that we react to, we respond to. But in my own exploration of this, I've seen so many times the conditions coming from the past, you know, how are they coming from the past? The way they come from the past is because they arise as a thought of the past in the present moment. So the past comes into the present moment through thinking. And the, um, uh, so beginning to just be here with this moment, we begin to see how do those pieces come into play from the past just by watching the present moment. And we see that the, the reactivity, that anger is created here and now, not because it's old baggage that's been like, you know, waiting for us, you know, somewhere in our, you know, there's actually been the anger there all along and it's just surfacing or we're just seeing it. It's, it's actually being created in this moment. A thought arises about something. And then there's a reaction in the present moment to that thought. There's the, the, the craving, the, the, the wanting that situation not to be happening in the present moment. This denial, this is not a good thing to be happening in the present moment. It's just a thought arising in the present moment. And we react to it. So coming into the present moment and just looking at what is happening here and now, just looking at that what, begins to show us the cause in the present moment for that anger coming to be. And that's actually where the power of this mindfulness practice begins to help to free us from these patterns. Because we see, we see it created in the present moment and we begin to see there's an option to not create it. And the whole exploration unfolds through being willing to 
meet it here and now in the present moment, turn, turn our attention out of the thing that we want towards the feeling of the wanting, the feeling of the anger, whatever, however it's manifesting, however that suffering is manifesting, turn towards it in the present moment. That is our path, absolutely. I read a teacher recently who said that in the moment if you're angry but you, you don't fully experience it, it can kind of splinter you off a little bit, like an emotional disconnect. It, it could, I think, yeah. Now, there, there's sometimes, though, I do have to say this piece, because there's sometimes with certain kinds of suffering, it can be so overwhelming that our ability to be present for it is not as strong as the power of that suffering. And if we try to be mindful of that, it can just end up sunk, sucking us right into that. And so we need to learn kind of to be skillful when do we actually meet it fully? And can we actually meet it fully? Can our mindfulness actually meet this fully? And if not, then to be respectful of the power of the momentum of that suffering and find something else. I mean, my own experience, help, helpful to turn to something neutral in experience. Keep yourself mindful so that you don't... You don't um, you know, let yourself go off into kind of uh, being lost in thought. If you let yourself go off into being lost in thought, what will tend to happen or what can tend to happen is that that pattern of anger can kind of infiltrate <laughs> those thoughts and you'll just end up back in it anyway. So if you bring your attention to something neutral, you know, sensation of your hands, sensation of hearing, the experience of hearing, or maybe feet on the ground, um, you can stay present and kind of know that that experience is there in the background, but not let it overwhelm you. So being skillful around not letting that feeling overwhelm you. Um, I've, ha- I've had very great success with that as well. Um, to not deny it. I think it, the denial is what creates the split. You know, the sense of it's not happening or kind of a repression. That, that will create a split. But if you, if you can, you know, meet the experience recognize, okay, this is too powerful, I'm going to put my attention elsewhere, knowing it's there, not denying that, but also not giving it any attention, not any conscious attention, as much as possible. That also can be very powerful way to work with this, those kinds of energies. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. So there is a very distinct uh, difference between uh, craving, desire, and aspiration, which is the wholesome side of it. And likewise, um, it seems to me that there is a wholesome side of um, aversion. Um, if I don't, for example, if I don't want to partake of something that I know is not healthy for me, mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I, I walk away and there's not that, I'm not overwhelmed with fear, I'm just just choosing not to go there, right? Yes. And I'm, I'm wondering, uh, I'm trying to find a word uh, such as, you know, for craving this aspiration. Right? Uh-huh. So I'm trying to find a word that would um, uh, capture the meaning of that. So there's, there's a couple of terms in the Pali that kind of go in this direction. And they've got some good translations and some bad translations. The, the Pali terms are hiri, H-I-R-I, and otapa. O-T-T-A-P-A. And they are 
often translated as moral shame and dread. Um, moral shame and moral dread. Um, some other people, some other translators, Tanisaro Bhikkhu has tried to come up with this kind of more uh, uplifting <laughs> um, translations because these are, these are understood to be very wholesome emotions, actually. This moral shame and dread, <laughs> but the terminology just doesn't doesn't do it for us somehow. <laughs> um, so conscience and concern are are a couple that kind of move in that direction. So you know the the sense of um, one of of they're they're basically they're two sides. One is the sense of wanting to avoid going towards something unwholesome because of understanding the results, seeing the drawbacks so clearly. And then the other is um, having done something unwholesome to recognize that wasn't so helpful. You know, to not, not beat ourselves up, not have a sense of aversion or harshness or judgment, to just simply very consciously recognize that was not so helpful. So that could be conscience and then the other of the, you know, check, you know, do I want to go there? Is this helpful to, to actually go there? That concern can be, um, can be used for that. So those are some possibilities. I see such elemental foundations to all of this, things that we learned in childhood, the experience of touching the hot stove and then having that reactivity and that fear. And um, that this process of sitting with suffering and trying to to understand it is a, a kind of an unraveling of cords we've let <laughs> wrap around us in a very strange, deranged cocoon. <laughs> yes. Yes, and you know, our culture supports this deranged cocoon. <laughs> it does. Here is an advertisement. <laughs> Satisfy your cravings. Wheat thins, Ritz, macaroni and cheese, M&Ms. These will satisfy your cravings. <laughs> yes. And there's another advertisement too, you know, that um, uh, it's kind of a... Uh, I don't know what the right word is. Apocryphal almost advertisement. It was a Ford advertisement. This guy, it was a picture of this truck, a Ford truck, and this guy sitting with... The Ford truck and and a whole bunch of gear, you know, but with it, you know, like the stereos and camping equipment and everything. And and the tagline on this thing, and the guy was sitting, I think, in a meditation posture. 
<laughs> the tagline on this, this ad was, to be one with everything, you need one of everything. <laughs> this is the message our culture gives us, you know? It's, it's not subtle. <laughs> and, and so, yeah, I mean, not only do we have kind of the tendency towards recognizing, you know, we recognize over and over again, we get what we want. You know, there's a feeling of relief. There's a feeling of that, oh, thank goodness, that dissatisfaction has gone away. And we begin to think over and over again. You know, this happens from the time we're, you know, an infant. We get what we want. We feel better. And we begin to think that's the only way we can feel better, to get what we want. And then we've got the culture telling us, yes, that's the only way you can, you can feel better, is to have what you want. It's, it's an incredibly tight cocoon. Um, and so this I really think, and it's not just this culture, you know, it, it's human culture. And, you know, it was in the time of the Buddha as well. And I think it was really, truly a brilliant thing of the Buddha to recognize that it's, the, it's this wanting, it's the, this is the linchpin, it's this wanting. And that if we can see the wanting go away, you know, so that we, we think, oh, I want this thing. The only way to not feel bad is to have what I want. If we operate from that mode, we don't even think of waiting to see what happens if the wanting goes away. So if we can, you know, hang out with that wanting and see it go away, we begin to see actually there's a lot of wantings that we do not need to act on. And then we can begin to distinguish the more skillful wantings from the less skillful wantings. What ones are more helpful for us? The, the movement towards cultivating these beautiful qualities. The letting go of needing, this neediness to have things arranged in, in such a way. I'm going to end with a... Do I have that poem with me? I don't think I do. I'll see if I can capture it. Something. It's a Rilke poem. Uh, and we always turned outwards towards the world of objects. We arrange it, it breaks down. We rearrange it, then break down ourselves. That's what we do. That break, we break down ourselves when we see it just doesn't work. And that's actually a beginning of that insight into this is wanting, this is, this is the cause of suffering. So we should stop. So more next week. (laughs) Thank you.